frankly. Um, and we're glad you guys are here. Uh, I want to say a, a prayer and then we'll, we'll get into the word together. Father, we just ask in these moments that you would speak, that we would hear your voice among us by your word in your table, uh, even in these conversations that we share uh, before and after. God, would you help us? And focus our hearts and be a work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in this series, uh, and, and Paul starts this chapter in a way that I, I think really speaks so well to our present moment as a culture. Our translation, it, it says, about spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed. And that's what Paul is about to spend three chapters doing, right? Chapters 12 through 14. Man, this. So that's what he's going to spend the next three chapters talking about, spiritual gifting. This idea of, of who is gifted, how they're gifted in the life of the church, and what that, that even looks like, right? But here's the thing. You could just as easily translate the beginning of this chapter with a word like the things of the Spirit, he uses an interesting word in Greek. It, it, it's broader than just spiritual gifts, but because that's where he's going, the translators want you to understand this is about spiritual gifts. That's what he's referring to. But you could even say something like spirituality is what Paul is dealing with. That's the kind of understanding we have here. The word is, is more than just spiritual gifting as we tend to think about it. That's how we normally talk about these things. When we think of spiritual gifting, we mean one very particular thing. And Paul is trying to speak to that and more, really, I think. And that's important because as a culture, we're obsessed with gifting. We are obsessed with it. Not just as the church, like as a culture, we are obsessed with gifting. We celebrate and exalt gifted people again and again. The Olympics are going on right now. We celebrate these incredible athletes. We celebrate musicians and actors and business moguls, right? We constantly celebrate gifting. And the same thing is often happening in the church. Like that slips in. Like we're, we're prone to the same sort of mindset. As Christians, we often flock to those who we have deemed to be the most gifted and we tend to, to elevate them in the life of the church. Not just in the sense of authority, we take gifted people and, and we always want to elevate them. And when we come to a passage like this, there's something innate within us. Because we've been around this for so long, culturally and in the church, that we come to this passage and we say, oh, it's about spiritual gifts. I need to, I need to be seeking my spiritual gifting. How am I gifted how can I use that in the life of the church? How can I use that as an individual believer? What does that look like? But for Paul, the emphasis is not on gifting. It's on the giver. That's where he's beginning. Like, this is where he wants to start. Not with this emphasis on gifting, but on the giver. It's not about what is your gift. That's not where he's going. It's what is the giver like? Who is the giver? Stop worrying about what is your gift and start considering the giver. This is where he's going. We have a tendency to ask the wrong questions. What is my gift? And Paul is trying to move us in this new direction. 
Because our spirituality is often, as he says, uninformed, disconnected, ungrounded. And when you think about it, that's something you could say about our culture as a whole as well. The spirituality of, of our culture is uninformed or, or misinformed at best. So often it's, it's completely ungrounded and, and detached from real understanding. There's not a, a rooting that exists. And for so long, our, our parents and our grandparents, what scared them was that atheism was this great threat to Christianity. That atheism was going to be the end of Christianity. And what we see now is we're not wrestling with atheism. We live in the midst of a very spiritual generation, right? That's the mantra of so many within our culture. I am not religious. I don't do church. I'm not religious. That kind of bothers me. I am spiritual. I just, I'm just not religious. That's what we find ourselves confronting. A generation that's not wrestling as much as with whether or not there's a higher power, a God, somewhere in the universe. It's not the issue. That's not what they're wrestling with. We're very, very spiritual culturally. Far more religious than I think most people realize. I don't think they get that. But our spirituality culturally tends to be grounded, most of all, in the self. That is the grounding of our spirituality, self. My own experience, my own needs, my own preferences, that is generally where spirituality is, is centered. And if, if whatever Jesus says, whatever the Bible says, whatever person you respect in the life of the church, whatever believer happens to say, if that tends to align with me, if it tends to affirm me, then I'm good with it. I can embrace it. And if not, frankly, I can be done with it. It's toxic and I need to move on from it. This is what we're constantly fed. And in essence, what we're left with is a whole bunch of people who long for spirituality. They're spiritual people, but they have no interest in the spirit. I am so spiritual, I just don't have an interest in the spirit himself. Especially if the spirit is going to say this thing. Especially if the spirit is inviting me to do that thing. This is where we live constantly. But Paul, he wants to ground your spirituality. He wants to, to, to root it in who God is. Not in self, but in God himself and his character, what he's like. And our worship life, which is what he's going to be talking about in these three chapters. Today we're, we're really covering all three, but the beginning of chapter 12 tells you everything you need to know. Our worship life as the people of God our spiritual lives as his people, our gifts, all of this gifting that we, we spend so much time talking about, it's all meant to be a reflection of who God is, grounded in him. And ultimately for Paul, what that means is two things. A spirituality that is grounded, first of all, in the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He's going to come back to that again. This is where he wants to, to ground our spirituality. And also, in the reality of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He wants to ground our spirituality here, both in the Lordship of, the, of Jesus and in the reality of the Trinity. So let's begin the whole thing by saying, this is, this is not an easy conversation. 
It's not simple. It's, it's very complex. It's difficult and convoluted for so many people. And I think that's largely because so many of us within the church have often used what we refer to as the Spirit to justify all kinds of things, right? To allow us to do what we want. It becomes a license for me to do the thing that I think is, is best. And you've probably experienced that personally. If you've been in the church long at all, if you've been around believers long at all, it just happens. And sometimes it comes from the best kind of intentions. Understand, people don't always do this from, from ill intent. They don't always have some sort of agenda that they even recognize. It's subconscious sometimes the way it's happening. You've probably experienced the moment where someone who's incredibly gifted begins to use that gifting as a means to kind of grasp for authority, to do something kind of beyond what they really need to be doing. They use it to elevate themselves or prioritize their needs above somebody else's, right? It becomes a, a sort of power play. They elevate their desires, their needs above everyone else's. And often, we're okay with it because we tend to value gifting over character. We tend to value gifting over wisdom. This outward, illustrious sort of gift that this person has is enough to validate all of it. Because when a person is, is so gifted, so confident in themselves and their gift, that they can say, God is calling me to do this. Like, the average church person doesn't feel comfortable ignoring that. Immediately when that happens, we, we get uncomfortable, right? When somebody kind of plays that, that sort of Holy Spirit card, they push that across the table at you, you're like, I, I don't know what to say. It's, it's their way of saying, this can't really be questioned. I'm telling you this, not because I want your advice or your wisdom. I don't think this can really be questioned. Like you've, you've seen it. Maybe it's like a friend. They're going through their midlife crisis. It sounds funny at Mosaic. They're, they're going through a quarter-life crisis. Less people in our church can go through a, a midlife crisis quite yet, but they're going through a crisis, whatever it might be. Like me, for example. It happens to pastors all the time. I show up tomorrow, and I submit my resignation. I don't want to be a pastor here anymore moving on. I don't feel like this is what I'm supposed to be doing, right? And the, the elders immediately, they'd have questions. They'd be like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what's next? Why, I, I just, I don't think I need to be doing ministry anymore. And I, I've had this dream for a long time. What are you going to do with yourself? How are you going to take care of your family? Where, where are you going? What, what's next? Like, what's your plan? Well, I'm going to open a restaurant. Kyle, you don't know how to cook. I don't know if you remember that. I don't need to know how to cook. It's going to be a sushi place. <laughs> Kyle, there's still some cooking involved. You still have to actually know what you're doing, okay? Right? doesn't matter. doesn't matter. I'm pretty good at making spaghetti. I'll figure it out, right? You would think it's ridiculous. Guys, don't worry. It's going to be like a, a sushi soul food fusion. It's going to fit Birmingham well, and people are going to flock. No, they're not. They're not. Collard greens and sushi, it doesn't work. It's never going to work. Don't do this. You're going to ruin your family. Some of you guys really think collard greens and sushi sounds good, and it's because you're messed up. There's something deeply wrong with you. The reason I have surrounded myself with this community, rooted myself here, is because that sort of thing is precisely what I do not need to do. Whether I have discerned that's what the Spirit is calling me to do or not, that makes no sense. I'm being silly about the whole thing, but real-life situations play out over and over again. 
where we're, we're seeing it happen and we don't know how to respond to it. It's not always that clear. It's not always that silly. Sometimes we don't feel very discerning in the spirit as this person we're talking to does. And it happens again and again. And we're thinking, how am I supposed to know what the spirit is speaking to you? We find ourselves in this situation. The church has found itself there over and over again. And that is what's happening in Corinth. A thing we've seen that we're familiar with, that is exactly what's happening in Corinth. There are these people in the church who have elevated themselves. Again, maybe not with ill intent. They have these more illustrious gifts. Their gifts are valued. Their role in the church is valued. Paul will emphasize speaking in tongues. He will uh, emphasize prophecy and healing. These very outward, incredibly powerful gifts. He'll emphasize these things as ways in which this happens. Those who have those gifts use them to, to further their agenda, to belittle those who don't have those gifts. Their brothers and sisters are kind of being pushed down as they're elevated. Others in the church don't have these sort of outward gifts. Maybe they're just serving humbly, meeting the needs of others in the church, doing pretty ordinary stuff. Maybe they're just an older, wiser believer who's speaking into the lives of new believers, younger believers, whatever it is. There's just not much about that that feels illustrious or exciting. So these people with these other gifts who perceive themselves as more gifted, who the church very often perceives as more gifted, are manipulating all of that, right? Like think about that weird situation. We talked about this earlier in our series. Jonathan preached a sermon on that, that scenario of incest that's playing out in the church. A man who's decided it's okay to sleep with his stepmother. How does something like that play out? Maybe it's because he's got a lot of money. A lot of people say, like, maybe he's a really good giver. Like, he contributes so much. He's a huge donor to the church. Maybe he's able to look you in the eye and say, man, this woman has had such an important role in my faith. I've grown so much because of this woman, and I feel like God is drawing me to her, right? Who knows what he's saying? But it's happening in the church at Corinth. People manipulating their gifts. And Paul introduce, introduces this whole new criteria for how we talk about these things. It's important how we deal with this. He says, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. The Lordship of Jesus what Paul wants to insert in all of those conversations. The lordship of Jesus becomes this standard by which we evaluate all of our decisions, all these things we believe God is calling us to do or somebody else may think they're hearing from God. This becomes the way we evaluate all of this, the lordship of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. For us, that just sounds like Christian language. We've seen it on a t-shirt or something or on some poster you hung in your house, right? It, it looks really nice framed, but in the Roman Empire, it's, it's trouble, from the word go, this is trouble. Jesus is Lord is a problematic statement. Everybody in the Roman Empire knows Caesar is Lord. And there is no questioning that. There's no going against that. And yet here's this group of people running around saying that Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was crucified, is Lord. It's a problem, right? For us, again, it just sounds kind of normal. doesn't sound offensive at all. To Rome, it was incendiary rhetoric. It was dangerous. 
They saw it as a threat to the empire. Here's this group of people running around saying it. It was not for casual admirers of Jesus. You don't just utter those words without thinking about it. You have to count the cost. It is going to cost you something to utter those words. And Paul says, only the Spirit of God could do that in you. Only the Spirit of God could transform you in such a way that you would be comfortable letting go of reputation and status and even your safety to claim that Jesus is Lord. Make him known as the Lord. But then he says this other thing that sounds kind of strange. No one can say Jesus be cursed by the Spirit of God. No one could claim, like, I feel like that's what the Spirit is speaking to me. And I, I think the question that comes to mind is, like, were there honestly people in the church saying those kinds of things? Were people actually saying something so absurd as that? Was that going on? And the chances are likely not. If, if that was actually a situation playing out in the church, Paul spends a lot more time there, likely. He's exaggerating, most likely. People aren't actually saying they believe the Spirit is speaking, Jesus be cursed. But Paul knows the kind of ridiculous things that come out of our mouths sometimes, right after we say, I feel like God is saying this to me. I feel like the Spirit is leading me to this. He knows the kind of stuff that comes out of people's mouths. He's heard it. He's seen it play out. People make all these unwise and unhealthy decisions. They shipwreck their faith sometimes. They abandon their commitments. They abandon their convictions. And very often, with the best of intentions, they say, I just feel like this is something the Spirit is leading me to. I don't know what, what to say. I don't know what to tell you. Right? But it can't be questioned. And Paul is saying forcefully, no, the Spirit doesn't talk like that. The Spirit doesn't say those things, and certainly not to one individual without anybody else knowing about it. God doesn't do that, Paul is saying. That's not how it works. And the question he wants us to consider is this. The thing we have to ask ourselves and others as we're trying to discern the Spirit together as God's people, is does this thing you believe God is calling you to do, this thing the Spirit is speaking to you, does it move you into deeper obedience of Jesus as Lord? Or does it move you deeper into obedience to self as Lord? This is what Paul is setting up, this dichotomy, right? There are some decisions in our lives that are moving us further and further from Jesus and Lord, as Lord and, and more and more toward me, self as Lord. My needs, my preferences, my hopes and expectations. And there are these other decisions that are moving me nearer and nearer to Jesus as Lord. Is this obedience to him or obedience to self? This is where all of these, these things have to be grounded. Paul wants to ground it, to slow things down a bit. You by yourself can't discern that. You can't make that decision. You have to consider this. And then Paul, he, he kind of subtly hints at another really important ground on which spirituality, gifting, the church itself are built. And that is the Trinity. We're all familiar with this. We're all mystified by the idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, right? That is a, a mysterious sort of truth. But Paul is, is, is kind of subtly hinting at it. Check this out. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, the same pneuma distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, the same kurios, right? He says, there are different kinds of, of working, 
But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work, the same theos. Numa and kurios and theos. He's using these different words. It gives you this, this three-line statement because he's trying to hint at something. He wants you to see something. Pay attention to it. Different gifts. We're all very different, and that's okay because the same Spirit is the one who gives them, right? Different service, different ways of serving, different ways of humbling ourselves, but the same Lord in all of it. Different working, he says, but the same God of the universe is the one working it all. It's this pretty clear allusion to Trinity, to Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the same words he would use to refer to each. It's, it's interesting what he's doing. Now, does Paul know the Trinity as the church would develop it, as a, a, a theological doctrine in the next 100, 200 years, 300 years? No, he does not. But it is very clearly the way he understands God. That's where the church is getting this idea of Trinity is from his writings, from the words of Jesus, the way Jesus talks about the Father, the way Jesus breathes out the Spirit on his disciples, right? Because if you look at Scripture, this is the way Scripture has been moving us toward this understanding of God from the very, very beginning. And I mean from like the word go. Like first page in your Bible sort of stuff. You open Genesis and you turn to the first chapter and there's this very familiar line, in the beginning, God created, right? You're seeing this creating God, this powerful God. Then you go to the next verse though and you see this mysterious image. It says that the spirit of God was, was hovering over the waters, mysteriously hovering over the waters. It's just pregnant with meaning. What exactly is the Spirit doing in all of this? Because you have the, the familiar idea, the way we normally think of creation, this God who's creating everything from nothing, and yet there, almost in the background for us, we forget about it, is the Spirit hovering mysteriously over the waters, playing this mysterious role in creation. There are these two distinct persons in the act of creation that you see from the beginning. Within the Godhead, you see these two different things. God is being portrayed from the start as complex, multifaceted. That's who God is. You read further down and you hear God say, let us make humankind in our image. And obviously, the first time you read that, you go, wait a minute. Our image? Let us make humankind in our own image? What are, we, what are we talking about? Why would they use that kind of pronoun here? Again, there's this plurality. From the start, this multifaceted God who's being portrayed. And you're like, what, are we polytheists? Are we tritheists? Like, what are we? What do we believe about God? This is mysterious. What's happening here? And then you go further and it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a mystery to whatever it means to be made in the image of God. Some of that we kind of have an understanding of, and others of it just remains a mystery to us. But Genesis is kind of hinting at some of what it means. Male and female, he created them. Right? Let us make 
humankind in our image. And so he made them in his image. Male and female, he created them, it says. You have these two distinct sexes, male and female, each made uniquely their own way. And yet God has made them to become one flesh. He's made them to be fruitful and and, and to multiply. That's the picture that you get in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You'll hear these two human beings, Adam and Eve, are becoming one flesh, right? They're distinct, they're unique, they are different, and yet God has made them to be one. So whatever it means to be made in God's image, partly what that means is that we become a reflection of this reality of who God is. We are many, and yet we are called to become one. He is many, and yet he is one. And we as his people, he's saying, though we are many, though we were made differently, distinctly, though we're all unique, God has made us to be one. The church is made to look this way. And I think the the image that we're most familiar with, the the thing that that, that most strikes us about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is that that really familiar image of the human body. Paul says we are like Christ's body, right? You can't forget that. It's it's a perfect metaphor, right? It, It really holds together so well. You cannot forget it. But before Paul even gets there, he wants to show us a picture of the church made in the image of the triune God. That's what he wants you to see. The church made in the image of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's important because there is no image more intimate than an image reminding us of this divine communion, this eternal community that has existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's nothing more intimate than that. Like, think about the words of Jesus. He's coming to the end of his ministry. He's trying to comfort his disciples as he starts talking crazy about crucifixion and resurrection and leaving them. In John 14, it's this amazing chapter where he's laying all this out. He he says, the Father is greater than I. Right? Jesus is trying to make clear to his disciples. He has a role to play, and that is to be obedient to his Father. Right? The Father is greater than I, and he constantly glorifies his Father throughout the rest of that chapter. You should read it. Then in Matthew 28, on the other hand, you see something else familiar. The Great Commission. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's about to leave them, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is, in one passage, telling us, All glory is reserved for his Father. The Father is greater than I, and yet we're seeing somehow the Father has given the authority of the kingdom completely to Jesus. That is amazing. Jesus is giving glory to the Father, and yet the Father is clearly giving glory to Jesus, like placing all of this authority on him. But then go further, like think beyond that. Think about like the resurrection. We tend to think about resurrection. We're like, well, obviously God raised Jesus from the dead. Yes, but Paul wants you to see the role of the Spirit, right? Even as the Spirit was hovering over the waters in the beginning, Paul wants you to see the Spirit was hovering over that tomb for three days, right? The Spirit was at work. He just says it outright in Romans 8. He says the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. This is how Paul understands the Spirit. 
That the Spirit is playing this role in resurrection. The Spirit is powerfully welcomed into all of this. Jesus will insist to his disciples that it is good for him to leave. Why? Because when he leaves, they can receive the Spirit. So you see that. A son pointing to a father, a father pointing back to the son, a son glorying in the Spirit, only resurrected by it, a father who chooses to work in this world by his Spirit. It's this amazing idea, right? The picture of the Trinity in this eternally kind of reciprocal relationship, this constant sort of self-giving, each person glorying in the other, father and son and Holy Spirit, this relationship between each of them. It's constantly reciprocated, self-giving love. This is the glue. This is the thing holding together God himself. John says it, if you remember in 1 John. God himself is love. And Paul says, the church is supposed to look like that. The church is supposed to look like this constantly reciprocated, self-giving love. That's what church should look like. No one elevating themselves above anyone else. The church becoming a reflection of the divine community of God himself. It doesn't mean nobody has authority in the church. It means nobody operates in that authority alone. Nobody alone is elevated to that position. We become a reflection of this divine community that has existed throughout all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Not for my own good. He's very intentional there. He's being very pointed. It's been given for the common good. Not for my own need but for the common need of this body that he's about to begin to illustrate. But so often, I mean, our experience of church, what we've made the church so often, is about my good alone. How I understand church and my experience of church is about my good alone. The meeting of my needs becomes my highest concern almost always. It happens in the church, and the American church is probably the most severe version of such a thing. And Paul invites us to be marked this other way, right? The giving of self, not the fulfilling of self. Paul is inviting the church, be marked by self-giving and not self-fulfillment. But for so long it has been. We're so unfamiliar with the church marked by self-giving. It is about meeting my needs, and that's how I choose where I go. It's how I choose whether or not I'm going to stay. It's how I evaluate my experience altogether. Paul is saying it is not self-fulfillment but self-giving that marks the church. The gifts that the Spirit chooses to give me are not about me. They're about this body, right? Spirituality in the life of, of any believer. Spirituality, as so many people lay claim to, right? I'm spiritual, right? Paul is saying that is not meant to be a solely individual experience. That doesn't mean it's not individual. You come to Jesus as an individual, but you do not come alone. We all, as individuals, we recognize that value. That is a, a value our culture clings to tightly. Individualism, that is who we are. Yet Paul is saying, Spiritual, spirituality is not made to be a solely individual experience. It's not about me in my pursuit of my own truth. That's what we've made it, but it is not. 
Spirituality is, is meant to happen in the context of this sacred communion, the church, right? You need other voices in your life. You need other people's authority over yours. You need somebody to call you when you want to open a, a soul food sushi store. Like, like it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, that's never going to work. This is how the church is to look, he's saying. There's a a mystical kind of reality to what Paul is, is talking about, that we are, are Christ's body. He's not just using a metaphor. He's saying Christ is, has left, and the Spirit in this world is at work in the life of believers, right? There's a mystical reality that somehow we really are wrapped up in the body of Christ himself. We really are hands and feet in this way, right? We are made to be a reflection of him, of his kingdom. But so often, if we're, if we're being completely transparent about it, so often, church has just been a reflection of our desire, our expectations, our needs, our motives, what we think is best, the most effective way to win the world and this war against our culture, whatever it might be, right? Like we've seen that happen so often. And every time we make the church look that way, we're telling a lie. It's what Paul wants you to see. It's all a lie. Like you've detached yourself from truth. You're no longer grounded in all of that. Paul's trying to help us see something. To be divided as the church, it's a lie. To try to live our lives as believers alone, it's a lie. That is simply not who God is. God did not make you to exist alone. You did not come to Jesus all by yourself. And he's pressing that upon us. Don't live a lie that is a reflection of some other value system than God himself. It's simply not who God is. On the other hand, Paul wants you to see, to love one another. In humility, treating others better than myself. To elevate the needs of somebody else above mine. To use my gifts not to elevate me, but to elevate the body. That's what God is like. That's what we see at the Godhead. That's what we see between Father, Son, and Spirit. This glorying in one another. This self-giving. And that's what he's inviting us into. There is nothing more captivating to our culture. There's nothing more captivating to those who are lost, who are spiritual. Nothing more captivating than seeing a church that actually reflects what God is like. There's no better opportunity to reveal, <clears throat> to reveal who God is than to embody in the church, in our relationships, the character of God, this self-giving. In our worship, that's what he's going he's gonna to move into. If you read chapters 12 and, and 13 and 14, even this chapter that's apparently about weddings because it gets read at all of them, even that, it's just about church. It's about us learning to love in this sort of way, in this self-giving sort of way. All of this gives us the, this incredible opportunity to reveal what God himself is like, what the giver is like, and not what we who have received those gifts are like. And the, the table reflects that. The table, that's why we come to this every week. I can stand up here for hours trying to articulate this for you and make sense of it, but the table just does it better. That's why we do it again and again. The band's going to come, and here you see it. There's, there's just one loaf for the whole room, right? We all eat of, of one loaf. We all drink of, of, of this one cup symbolically, right? 
Every time we're coming to this table, we're making a statement. Every time we are becoming more like the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We, though we are many, are becoming one. Every time we do this, that is becoming more true. We are more truly becoming his body every time we do this. We're becoming like him. We are becoming one. And that has never been more important than in like the most divisive season of our lives, right? As we come to the table, we are being bound to one another and to Christ. There's something good about that. That's what we're invited into in the church. That's what I want to invite you guys into. Like at Mosaic, in general, that's what we want for the church. That's our, our, that's our vision for the church. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's our desire for you in the church. We pray that's what you have experienced here. We, we hope that's what you're going to continue to experience here. Um, we just want to invite you guys in these moments. They're going to play, and we'll invite you guys. Just come, come down the aisles. You can come to either table. Uh, and just tear off a piece of bread. Grab a cup. There are also cups if you're not quite comfortable we understand with the pandemic you can grab one of the the cups that has everything kind of packaged together however you do it it's fine um, we're going to move into worship and then I'll, I'll come back together and lead us through communion father we ask in these moments that you would speak powerfully among us you would bind us together that we would become a reflection of who you are that our spirituality would be grounded in your character and not ours and transform us we pray as we partake of, of this body and this blood. In Jesus' name, amen.